Welcome to the Daedalus Workshop, Episode 5. We're in Season 1, reading a People's History of the United States, and today we're doing Chapter 4, titled, Tyranny is Tyranny. I'm Ethan. And I'm Jason. Thanks for that smoking hot intro, Ethan. Oh, just get ready. <laughs> Me smoking hot all episode oh, long. Don't you worry. <laughs> I'm coming in hot. Uh, just blowing out the levels here, man. Good. No, go ahead. <laughs> listen, listen. By chapter count, we are uh, like a sixth away through uh, the book, which is like modestly exciting. That's five more episodes than we thought we'd record. Yep. Fair. Uh, but page count, not so much. So yeah. um, for everyone who probably hasn't ever opened the book, you're, you're doing great and uh, we'll keep struggling. So, uh, but if you have thoughts on the first sixth then send them over at the Daedalus Workshop at gmail.com. Okay, in order to paint a picture of this chapter, I want to talk briefly about Rembrandt, the painter, who characterized the Baroque period of art history in the 17th century and even into the 18th. My favorite thing about Rembrandt, which is definitely not a hot take, the one not hot thing about this episode, is his use of light and shadow. Uh, specifically... Talking about the night watch, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the anatomy lesson of Dr. Nicholas Tulp, uh, or the prodigal son. If you've never seen any of those, pull one up. And each of these, like the light is coming from somewhere specific, which seems obvious, but uh, didn't always happen uh, pre-Baroque. So a lot of the painting is like left in shadows. Your eye is drawn to the central image. And then it begins to kind of wander around the dark nooks and crannies of the, the painting. Um, for this chapter of People's History of the United States, the central image sitting square in a beam of light is the Declaration of Independence, proclaimed in 1776. Even more central for Zinn is the language of unification written within. Zinn is going to argue there is a lot happening in the sh shadows surrounding and leading up to this language. What we are going to try to do here is light up the entire frame and illuminate the shattered corners of our history. We might find something useful, or we might remove shadows only to find more shadows. Yeah, so I appreciate you um, forcing me to go look up paintings that I'd never seen before from Rembrandt, so that was cool. We're now also doing painting as part of this <laughs> digging through Zinn's history book. Uh, no, it's cool. Very good analogy. Big fan of Rembrandt. My favorite is uh, Sea of Galilee. So if you pull one up, that's the one to pull up, in my opinion. All right, well, you kick us off and I'll pull it up. All right, let's get into it. From the first page of the chapter, quote, Starting with Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia, by 1760, there had been 18 uprisings aimed at overthrowing colonial governments. There had also been six black rebellions from South Carolina to New York and 40 riots of various origins, end quote. Yeah, and I had to double check this, but as a reminder, Bacon's Rebellion took place in 1676. So this covers a, a period of 84 years. So without knowing the exact dates uh, that these rebellions or riots took place, just average amount, that's a rebellion every four and a half years on average with riots like every other year to keep people interested. So you almost think that's a as, high number or low number to you as you were reading that, like when uh, you went through that? Thinking of like 
uh, an actual rebellion that needs to be put down or needs to be dealt with, that seemed shockingly high to me. That's like the frequency of uh, our our elections almost a uh, little bit longer. But again, with riots interspersed throughout, to keep people interested, keep them hype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the uh, the old album slash EP release schedule. <laughs> get your album every four yeah, years, yeah, and every yeah. other you get you get a little EP, three yeah, little tracks. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> keeps keeps you going, and especially especially at a time when um, the world moves slower. I imagine that you know rebellion yeah. gets quelled. Oh, don't worry, everybody. Keep your gear around. Keep it oiled. Another one's coming in four years. Returning to that same quote. By this time also there emerged, according to Jack Green, stable, coherent, effective, and acknowledged local political and social elites. And by the 1760s, this local leadership saw the possibility of directing much of the the rebellious energy against England and her local officials. It was not a conscious conspiracy, but an accumulation of tactical responses. After 1763, with England victorious over France in the Seven Years' War, known in America as the French and Indian War, expelling the French from North America, ambitious colonial leaders were no longer threatened by the French. They now had only two rivals left, the English and the Indians. The British, wooing the Indians, had declared Indian lands beyond the Appalachians out of bounds to whites, the proclamation of 1763. Perhaps once the British were out of the way, the Indians could be dealt with. Again, no conscious forethought strategy by the colonial elite, but a growing awareness as events developed. End quote. In that quote, and kind of at a couple points throughout the chapter, he twice references, um, makes a reference to actions not being conscious decisions in some form, um, maybe suggesting that he grants this, he, he would grant the argument that this isn't a grand scheme of oppression, um, but maybe perhaps rational actions to maintain power. Um, but I don't know. Did I just repeat myself there? No, I mean, he says tactical responses to individual situations. Yeah. I think when he's looking back, I think that he's going like, yeah, if you read this, if you read my book, you may see this as some sort of grand conspiracy. And I don't want you to see it that way. That's not what I think happened. Okay. And that's, that's really what I was, uh, I was not struggling with, but curious about is, um, is this, is he suggesting that it might be a conspiracy, but it's not actually, but yeah, it's, it, like you said, you said it pretty clearly. Yeah. I thought it was the, the opposite of that. Okay. That he was trying to quell conspiratorial notions in people's heads. And that makes sense to me where it's, yeah, rational actions, um, reactions to some sort of stimulus. Okay, returning to that same quote to finish it up. With the French defeated, the British government could turn its attention to tightening control over the colonies. It needed revenues to pay for the war and look to the colonies for that. Also, the colonial trade had become more and more important to the British economy and more profitable. It had amounted to about 500,000 pounds in 1700, but by 1770 was worth 2,800,000 pounds. So, the American leadership was less in need of English rule, the English more in need of the colonists' wealth. The elements were there for conflict. End quote. Do you think it's fair to say that Zinn is not fond of the founding fathers? Um, I know we've talked that it seems he generally doesn't like people, or he takes the opposite side of people who hold wealth or hold power, right? I mean, that's... Uh, 
stated early on in this book. Um, and uh, kind of always being on, on the other side of the executioners, I think was one of his uh, analogies that he paints. Um, but on the first page of this chapter, uh, he has what I think might be a, a fairly snarky take on the founding fathers and the system of government they helped create. Um, saying they created the most effective system of national control devised in modern times and showed future generations of leaders the advantages of combining paternalism with command. Um, I, don't, I feel like you could almost read that like a, like sarcastically. What do you mean sarcastically? Um, like they did a great job setting up a system where people people will more easily be controlled and commanded. Yeah, I mean, I guess to me, it seems like the same kind of like statement you could say about like um, praising Hitler for leadership. Like Hitler was a great leader. You could read that sarcastically. Well, he was able to not di diving into that, but saying like, sure, he's able to lead a movement. He's able to in incite people to move to action. Um, but s speaking specifically about um, there, because he. he he puts this into, uh, yeah, just as this development of the system of government that's saying, I don't know, like, if he doesn't really like systems of government, if he doesn't like powerful uh, oppressors, then is he saying that this, this system that was created was the best at oppressing people secretly? Sure, yeah, I guess when I think about control, I think about, like, the way the last chapter ended. Mm-hmm where we were talking about the poor whites and the blacks, blacks and the Indians, and the poor whites and the Indians. Um, it's like coming off the heels of that, that ending of that chapter into this. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, if yeah, if you find that argument compelling from the end of the last chapter, then it's effective. Um which, yeah, the, the most effective system. Now, is it the most effective system? I, 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 I don't know. Um, but I think that the levers for control at the time, I think were potentially quite effective. If you find his argument compelling. Yeah. And we'll, th there'll be more of this throughout the chapter where this is just kind of a question that hangs over it for me. Yeah. Is, um, were they creating a, a system of control or were they creating a system in which people had control over their individual choices starting from somewhere? I know it like change takes time, but at least starting from somewhere more than before. Yeah. And it also it might not be an either or mm -hmm. it, it could be a both and. Um, yeah, I'm fully willing to accept <laughs> that for sure. Right. I, but, <laughs> but like, I think to me, that's what's important is like, there's good and there's bad, and sometimes the good and the bad get intermingled into the into one system. Yeah, sometimes, mm -hmm. and uh, it becomes difficult to remove the remove the bad because you lose the good as well. Right, and you got to just 
weigh pros and cons of an overall system and decide is the good that comes out of this worth the bad that also comes out versus another system that has maybe different kinds of good, but, but more bad. Or, I mean, you just got to weigh overall because you're not going to get a pure virgin system that is holy versus a evil demonic system that only does bad. Right. That'd be great. I would love that. Uh, <laughs> that's just not the way the world, well, world we, works, in my opinion. Even just the, the trouble between your good and versus my good, your bad versus my bad. And, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Those benefits. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've done a good job of setting the scene for this chapter. Um, like the entire middle section of the chapter is essentially a repeated pattern played out in the cities and out across the country. Uh, more or less, the poor get upset at the excesses of the rich begin to rise up and their energy is redirected towards Britain while the class conflict is swept under the rug. Uh, so we're going to take a look at Boston briefly and then we'll cover the regulators in North Carolina. So to Boston, quote, what seems to have happened in Boston is that certain lawyers, editors, and merchants of the upper classes, but excluded from the ruling circles close to England, men like James Otis and Samuel Adams organized a Boston caucus and through their oratory and their writing, molded laboring class opinion, called the mob into action, and shaped its behavior. This is Gary Nash's description of Otis, who he says, keenly aware of the declining fortunes and the resentment of ordinary townspeople, was mirroring as well as molding popular opinion. We have here a forecast of the long history of American politics, the mobilization of lower class energy by upper class politicians for their own purposes. This was not purely deception. It involved, in part, a genuine recognition of lower-class grievances, which helps to account for its effectiveness as a tactic over the centuries. End quote. I, I'm, I get stuck in a couple, couple things. One of, these, um, one of these points that he, he writes about, apparently the governor of Massachusetts at this time was getting annoyed that this mob, <laughs> the lower class, kept showing up to town meetings to vent grievances and they would show up in such numbers that they would outvote the gentlemen, merchants, substantial traders, as he put them, um, in these town meetings. But we're also kind of beat over the head with the fact that if you didn't own land, you couldn't vote. And this this chapter seems like certain things jump around here. I, and as we've talked about... When you're reading through a history book, it's not directly linear because you you have to you have to follow these threads of events and stuff. Yeah. So it jumps back and forth in time. So I think this is, takes place in 1750, um, but it's unclear that there's like these lower classes of people that are showing up, outvoting the more respectable members of society, <laughs> and becoming a bit of a quote unquote problem. Um, but I was just confused by that. Like, is there is there just a, a difference between the type of votes? Like, there's there's like, um, I I don't know, some sort of policy or, or vote or procedural vote they get a part of, but they don't get to vote. Like, who's actually like sitting there holding the gavel type thing? I don't know. Well, it's difficult because you have different cities that at this time may have different rules. I mean, I have no idea. And different. I mean, they're not quite states yet, but yeah, they're kind of states. Mm -hmm. Um with different rules so to know where and when we are in time. Um, but the idea of, I mean, to me, I guess to me, the idea of uh, some sort of upper class 
and being outnumbered by the workers. Yeah. That makes sense to me. And the idea that the workers show up to these town hall meetings and can outvote because there's more of them, that seems straightforward, I guess. And here's where, at the end of the quote that you mentioned, we're talking about there's this genuine recognition of lower class grievances, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that if you're, if you're outnumbered, upper class versus lower class, um, you do have an option to actually like hear them out and try to, if you have the power, provide, um, provide something that they want, that they're asking for. Now he talks about this as an effective tactic over the cent- centuries. Is this, does he have a cynical view of this? Is, is it because it, it, it's like, it's like letting crumbs fall off your table uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I would say he he's definitely, this is not his favorite style of things getting done. Because um, really the question I have is like, what, what kind of standard does Zinn have for a person? Is it never acquire power or influence? Or if you do, just do whatever, do whatever the oppressed people want and give them everything you have. I, I well, I mean, I, I think that there's this. So whoever I know, I did another either or, and there's a huge like, <laughs> there's plenty of room in the middle there. I'm just I'm trying to to figure out what when when he's referring to like tactics and systems and so so let's just zoom in in this phrase right here and let's see if we can if we can get anywhere. The mobilization of lower class energy by upper class politicians for their own purposes. So like the first thing that that reminds me of in a very odd way uh, is being a summer camp counselor Mm. and having 300 children (laughs) that I need to mobilize and all want something. And I have to convince them to do what I want. And that guy sprinkles something in for them to make sure it happens my way because I'm in charge and I know best, which I think is fine when you're talking about adults and children for the most part. Uh, because for the most part, adults know better than children. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about society, I think the notion that like an upper class person knows better than a lower class person, that doesn't sit well with me personally. It doesn't as a default, right? There's no rule that says because you're in the upper upper class, you know better than someone in the lower class. But does that also preclude someone because of their upper class status, because they potentially o- occupy some hall of power within the society that they cannot do anything that benefits the lower class, even if the lower class, even if the lower class doesn't want this, right? It's against what they want, but it actually benefits them. They're just incapable of seeing that. Sure, sure, sure. And I know that argument is used all the time, like flipped, but genuinely. No, I don't think that that's not possible. I do think that, um, Someone who's poor has no money and they have no power, which means they have no leverage. Yeah. Besides, like, their one vote. Which they didn't even have at this time, depending. Depending. Confusion on that. Yeah, so really, you have lots of people with no leverage. They're showing Mm -hmm. up town hall meetings, trying to figure out how do we get leverage to get somebody on our side. Because if you have wealth and power and there's a bunch of people that live in your city, there's no, like, inherent reason beyond, like, human dignity to be on their side or to help them. Well, 
I think maybe prior, but it sounds like what is happening now is those people who have no leverage just by sheer number, they're starting to gain that, which is why they now have to be kind of in some way you have to figure out how to tap into that and direct that energy and mobilize it and whatnot. Yeah. I think, I think that that's Zinn's argument is that that's one of the reasons why then you're seeing these sort of methods of control, which was outlined more last chapter because with a one-to-one vote, the people who have power are going to lose power. Mm -hmm. And um, humans haven't really figured out how how to share power very well. We've gotten better at it across the ages, certainly, but I don't think we, I don't think we do a great job of it. I think we do like an, some. I think sometimes we do an okay job. Well, because eventually one person has to make the call. I'm not convinced of that entirely, but there's not really systems that have figured out how to do it any other way beyond that. I, I mean, until we get some sort of like, no joke, like unless your hive mind where you truly understand the goal or what everybody's goals and are in a specific situation, eventually one person has to make the call. Like for families, companies, nations, like. Yeah, I, I, I don't buy that in families like one person is making the call. Not, not, I'm not saying all the time there's, there's given, there's taken, there's agreement, but when, when a decision has to be made or action has to, you have to decide whether to take action or not take action on something. Eventually, like somebody has to make that choice and either convince people to come along with them or. Yeah. I, I think it's possible for a, like a small group of people who actually trust each other to to lead as a group. And that's just really like, I'm kind of out on a wing here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I am not convinced that, uh, that, 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 that that's not possible. But I think it's uh, far more time efficient to have one person. And I don't yeah. think that's a bad system. Yeah, I'm just not convinced that's the only system that's worth. I'm not convinced we should stop. We've got it perfected. I don't think it's perfected. I guess is what I'm saying. I think that there's a possibility for innovation still, in in models. Yeah, and maybe maybe it's a communication problem. Um, just learning as a species to communicate more, like better in groups rather than in our own. Like just think about how much we still communicate in our own brains. Just as far as like making decisions on our own, that's not, I mean, so I'm married and that is probably like number one between my wife and I is when we, when there's conflict, it's because we've had half the conversations in our own heads and forgot to like tell the other person. Yeah. And th- <laughs> that makes sense. Um, my last thing on this, I had a thought, uh, is the act, this accusation of a few people in power constantly working to keep the poor you know in their place um whether uh, out in the open or masked behind some altruism fake altruism or whatever um it's been around forever what i think is important is that at this point in history the tables are actually starting to turn in the favor of the individual 
in the favor of those lower classes because that energy is now starting to matter more than before. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's and that's one of the things about like reading a people's history of the United States is he's not going to hit on the good parts. I don't believe that Zinn doesn't think there are good parts, but that's not what this project is. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's nice to like try to pepper him in as reminders because if you're just reading this, you're just going to get hit. It's like you're watching the news where you're just getting hit with bad, 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 bad. Yeah. And we're on chapter four and <laughs> there's 25 chapters. Oh man. He might break us. He might break me. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, I'll make w- the, the last comment I was thinking about was, um, talking about like um, having a genuine recognition of lower class grievances. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, if like, when you modernize that, I just think so much of the way that politics is um, broken up into segments and then you are using specific kinds of language targeting, whether it's a, an ethnic segment or a religious segment or whatever, you use their language for your benefit, even though the politicians, they, they don't, they don't care. They just want the votes. You can, yeah, from the, it always, uh, it tastes bad. It's bitter in your mouth when you're talking about politics. Politicians like coming to Wisconsin talking about how much they love cheese. And then they go down south and talk about how they got Tabasco in their, in their bag, in their back pocket all the time, just in case, you know, like, but entertainers do that as well. So in Wisconsin, there's a comedian named Charlie Barron's, um, that, from what I know is very, he's very popular. I think he came up on like Facebook, YouTube, started this thing called Manitowoc Minic. And it's pretty much all inside jokes for specifically Wisconsin, but also just kind of like Midwestern related humor. And it's wildly popular because he's like tapped into kind of like those common things that we share in this part of the country. Um, and it's not, I don't, I don't think it's nefarious in any way. So part of it is just being able to communicate to some larger group of people than just the 10 people you know is kind of like tapping into those um, those common needs, those common themes, those common whatever, that common culture. It's I think it's part of just getting a message to a broader audience. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the regulators. Quote, In North Carolina, a powerful movement of white farmers was organized against wealthy and corrupt officials in the period from 1766 to 1771, exactly those years when, in the cities of the Northeast, agitation was growing against the British, crowding out class issues. The movement in North Carolina was called the Regulator Movement. The regulators referred to themselves as poor, industrious peasants, as laborers, the wretched poor, oppressed by rich and powerful designing monsters. The regulators saw that a combination of wealth and political power ruled North Carolina and denounced those officials whose highest study is the promotion of their wealth. They resented the tax system, which was especially burdensome on the poor, and the combination of merchants and lawyers who worked in the courts to collect debts from the harassed farmers. The regulators did not represent servants or slaves, but they did speak for small owners, squatters, and tenants. End quote. You know that we've become less of a class society when we just don't have as much beautiful language to describe poor people. They're just throughout when whenever he's talking about someone from the upper class. A lot of flowery uh, language. Yeah. Um, 
One thing, though, that I got confused on in this section, uh, Zinn seems to want to emphasize that the regulators, you know, did not own slaves, really, kind of. But because then he has this confusing statement. I'm going to read it and see if, if it makes more sense reading it out loud than when, when I went through this. Quote, in the western counties where the movement developed, only a small percentage of the households had slaves, and 41% of those were concentrated to take one sample western county in less than 2% of the households. The regulators did not represent servants or slaves, but they did speak for small owners, squatters, and tenants. So he's saying that, and I'm going to know here, that 2% of the households in the counties where the regulator movement de- developed they owned 41% of the slaves in those same counties. Yeah. And the counties are in the state. And that's, um, I mean, I, isn't he saying that there's a large amount of slaves concentrated in only a couple homes? Yes. So if you've, if you've got, def- if you've got, a, uh, yeah, almost half the slaves, you've got three plantations and you've got a hundred little poor shacks. Yeah. Then all of the majority, the vast majority of the slaves are on the plantations and maybe a couple of those shacks have a slave. So, yeah. And what I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to understand is he basically saying that this regulator movement. They're poor. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think, I think that's what he's trying to say is that this is a movement of poor people and not. I mean, you can read a couple ways, but like, I don't think he's trying to say that they're pure non-slave owners and poor. They're just poor and can't afford slaves. Okay. I bet these people would like to have a slave because everybody has a slave. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I uh, how I was understanding it, but I just got, I got lost there. Sure. <laughs> Okay, a little more of the quote then. Uh, The regulators petitioned the government on their grievances in 1768, citing the unequal chances the poor and the weak have in contentions with the rich and the powerful. The result of all this was that the assembly passed some mild reform legislation, but also an act to prevent riots and tumults, and the governor prepared to crush them militarily. In May of 1771, there was a decisive battle in which several thousand regulators were defeated by a disciplined army using cannons, end quote. Um, He's going to talk about this more throughout the chapter, that as as, um, unrest was growing, um, especially between the classes, that their, their... the messaging was like, "Hey, let's let's like calm down," and um, uh, trying to prevent riots. One thing, though, that that I think like the prevention of riot riots would effectively also protect the little guy, because I think there's this this viewpoint that um, unrest uh, that the lower classes any sort of unrest, right? That's them pushing back against this top-down command, right? Actually kind of like stretching their muscles and showing what they can do. So then as language is used to kind of tap that down, like, yes, we're on your side, but just like, let's be peaceful. Let's not, let's not freak out. Um, There was uh, on the top of page 63, um, it's mentioned that 
even farmers leasing land from wealthy landowners ended up becoming targets just because of proximity. Basically, the the rabble rousers were in that area. The farmers were closer. And yeah, they're not who we're going after, but they're closer than the wealthy landowner who's off somewhere. Um, there'll be more opportunities. Like, this is going to come up again. But uh, I'm very guarded in this chapter. Just let me say that. You probably oh, noticed. Only, only this chapter. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I, I'll make one comment that I think um, to me is potentially interesting. I actually see a little bit of mm, plucky hope in Zinn's writing here in the sense that to me, it seems like he th thinks that there was a potential... Um, for um we talked about like the 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 class conflict mm -hmm. and um which i mean class conflict is, has has gone on forever and it may just be a result of society like it, i i i think it's a problem that humans should work towards um but i don't know that that it's ever going to get fixed well, and become non-existent. I mean, on the smallest level, the individual person, part of the problem is it plays into human faults of greed, envy, and jealousy. But so like the notion that like um, the class issues are getting crowded out. Mm -hmm. In part of my reading here, it seems like he thinks that, um, at least I think he thinks that, <laughs> that those things could have been fixed at that time had Britain not been around or a different sort of system. Okay. They're like, not that it's, um, yes, there are some factors of control. Yeah. But uh, because of riots, these were things that needed to get fixed in some manner. Yeah. And I don't think he would say that uh, there was no possibility for things to be fixed peacefully to make a better world for everyone involved. Yeah. Um, and I think that the world has gone better across time, but you can look back at different moments in history and say, oh, we, we could have had a big jump towards something. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Let's finish up this uh, regular section then. Quote, one consequence of this bitter conflict is that only a minority of the people in the regulator counties seem to have participated as patriots in the Revolutionary War. Most of them probably remained neutral. Fortunately for the revolutionary movement, the key battles were being fought in the north, and here in the cities, the colonial leaders had a divided population. They could win over the mechanics, who were a kind of middle class, who had a stake in the fight against England, who faced competition from English manufacturers. The biggest problem was to keep the propertyless people who were unemployed in Hungary in the crisis following the French war under control, end quote. That had to have been, been terrifying. Um, just the number of poor people and not knowing where things are going to swing, especially if you have designs to start separating yourself off from Great Britain. Um, within a conflict control of these large numbers of the lower class and the poor people 
in my mind, would be critical to both Britain and the new Continental Congress. Because one thing, and one thing that has always drawn men to fight in war, to fight for your side, is just pay and food. And I can't imagine how um, the concern um, among the revolutionaries of going up against what I imagine was a better funded British military offering just the perception of a better chance at steady pay, three square meals a day, and eventually someone's going to win. Who cares? I'm just a little guy, so whoever wins, I lose. But at least for the time being, I can get pay, I can get food, and maybe I can get myself a little homestead at the end of this. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people saw it as an opportunity to like, for class mobility even. Just Yeah, just fighting, period. Yeah, like I'm poor. I'm going to go into service. I'm going to get paid. I might come out with who knows what, but be better off post-war if I, if I can survive. Yeah, and, if, <laughs> and this is where if we were actually like sitting being taught this in a classroom. I would put this out there, this belief. I believe that this might have resulted in uh, better terms, quote-unquote, being offered by the revolutionaries to the people. So if we're if right right if the powerful are super powerful in this time period, and they're they're just they're dripping out freedoms or benefits to the lower class, that the revolutionaries might actually offer better terms, because um, even if we have to accept that all of this uh, that this this is all what it costs to create this new free nation, then like something in there incentivized people to take up that mantle. I mean, I can tell you that like, if I'm looking at an apartment uh, and there's two equal ones and with one, my landlord's in the same city and in another, my landlord's across the country, I'm going to go with a local landlord because that's a, that's a generally a better deal for me. But what if the local, the guy across, you know, the out of town landlord has a hit out on your local landlord and if you rent from him, you could hang too. That's like, there's got to be something else there that, and, and like we know what it is. We're getting to that part with independence, but I don't think it's just people being manipulated into supporting those in power. No. They had to actually buy into this. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certainly buy-in. And there was probably... In my opinion, I would say there's probably some of both. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but even that would be like an incremental change where you have two options because you have you have the, the actual existing control. Yeah, they're out-of-towners, but that's what we've had. That's status quo. Better funded, perhaps. And like maybe I can... Maybe, maybe it would be viewed as a little more stable than taking up arms with the revolutionaries. But you at least had that choice, right? And it's not great, but change can happen slowly, like really slowly, and it can still be good. Yeah. Yeah. So let me make a note that Boston Massacre mm -hmm. happens in 1770. Boston Tea Party, 1773. Um, so there is a lot happening in the colonies. Um and Zinn talks about sort of some 
property damage that occurs and some home invasions um, against the rich as a result of mob violence. Um, so some of this could be class conflict. Some of this could be sort of the rich as stand-ins for British rule. Um, but Zinn sees this backdrop as producing a specific kind of oratory written style. Specifically, quote, to find language inspiring to all classes, specific enough in its listing of grievances to charge people with anger against the British, vague enough to avoid class conflict among the rebels, and stirring enough to build patriotic feeling for the resistance movement, end quote. Speaking of language, I have to read one quote from John Adams, who actually um, was the defense attorney for the British soldiers from uh, the Boston Massacre. Um, I guess it's somewhat famously. He said he was describing the crowd at the massacre in his defense of the British soldiers. Quote, a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes and mulattoes, Irish teagues and outlandish jacktars. That is a uh, saucy sentence. <laughs> so jacktars are sailors. I did okay. look that up. Jack was just like, and you would call it just any dude could be a Jack. That's funny. Yeah. Jack and, and Joe. Yep, exactly. So Jack stars, but saucy boys. You don't want to be a saucy boy in Mr. Adams' view, apparently. That's such a weird, <laughs> such a weird phrase. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk about then Tom Paine a little bit. Quote, Tom Paine's common sense which appeared in early 1776 and became the most popular pamphlet in the American colonies. Um, Zinn saying this is that common sense is an example of sort of this kind of language um, that's both specific and vague. And pamphlets at this time were effectively what now happens on Twitter. Yeah, pamphlets were everything. This is where uh, the battles took place in pamphlets out on the street being distributed to people. It's it's pretty incredible. And part of the reason that we have so much of this history uh, and is amazing, and also why we can have such um, a deep study of what our founders and kind of like the thought leaders at this time believed and what their philosophy was because they were just constantly ripping out pamphlets to oppose each other's viewpoints. There were a lot of words and by a lot of people that we can look back and mm -hmm. hear from them directly. Um, so Tom Paine's common sense, quote, made the first bold argument for independence in words that any fairly literate person could understand. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil, end quote. Um, and Paine does more than write inspirational T-shirt quotes that everybody can agree on. Uh, four big things he does are, one, he does away with the divine right of kings. Two, he argues that there is no economic advantage to remaining under Britain. Three, he argues that Britain has dragged the colonists into the wars of Europe. And four, he knows how to make an emotional pitch. Quote, everything that is right or reasonable pleads for separation. The blood of the slain, the weeping voice of nature cries, tis time to part. End quote. Being able to communicate in common and simple terms that everyone can understand always seems to be 
the marker of a, a great leader for their time. Like this guy showed up on the scene and changed the world after. Um, and whether it was used for oppression and domination or for freeing the common man, that seems to be like a common thread of these giants of men that came before us in time is that the ones who could really move the crowd could speak their language. Well, you need people, you need the crowd to follow you. If the crowd can't follow you verbally, then they can't follow you physically. Yeah. Um, Payne's writing, too, about not wanting to be involved in Britain's costly wars and quarrels, uh, to me, aligns with some of the other language that was used at the time, asking people, talking about, we need to have resist against Britain. We need to, right? We need to throw off the steel, blah, blah, blah. But let's do it, like, let's be chill about it. Let's not break stuff. Let's not riot. Let's, we, yes, we need to resist, but let's not destroy property. I think rioting, riots make it, would make it harder to argue that things will be more peaceful outside of Britain's rule. What do you mean? So if part of what you're, you want to, if part of the reason that you want to separate yourself from Great Britain is because they're using your blood and treasure to lead their battles. They're yeah. bringing chaos to your shores, to your people, right? Um, yes, you want to separate yourself from that. But even if there are wealthy and powerful people that take advantage of that system, they're going to be a part of the new one. So don't, don't, like, don't burn their shit down. You have to live with these people. They're, yeah, yeah they're, they're your roommates. Right, <laughs> right. Um, I also thought that there might have been... Um, uh, kind of like a realities on the ground of really not want, really wanting to tap down riots and rebellions and just uh, the, the firefighting capabilities at the time. Like if you live in a city where anything is relatively close together, even if it's uh, a wealthy person's warehouse or store or whatever that they own, if that gets lit on fire, like that could do serious damage to a lot of people's property and livelihoods. Yeah. Fire's a big deal. Yeah. Uh, total side note. Yeah, I also think like um, when when Payne begins to argue for the removal of the divine right of kings, like that's a pretty big deal. Um, and hard for hard for me to comprehend. Because shortly after this, we have the French Revolution. Which I'm talking like 10, 15 years after this. Mm. And the French Revolution is also centered on removing the divine right of kings. That's not the only thing, but it's one of the big like the belief at the time was that the king was put in place yeah. by God, which, and that goes all the way back to Assyria and Babylon. Like yeah. the fact that that idea existed for that long mm -hmm. for like when Caesar died in Rome, he, there was a shooting star in the sky and that was him being deified. Yeah. Um, and that idea persisted in the modern world. And the French went a lot harder, though, right? It wasn't just, hey, our kings are no longer gods. Like, they, like, tore down religion in their in their country. Is that true? Like, all, like religious leaders and kings, like, they went nuts. Yeah, Not I mean. Nuts, they went hard. Yeah, there was a, definitely a lot of blood over there. I, I mean, there's also a lot of blood over here, too. Um you have the entire Revolutionary War. I mean, I guess you can say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, yeah, people died on both sides for sure. 
Um, I mean, one of the things that happened with uh, here in like in the states and in the, in the colonies was like just the the deist movement, which was like, I mean, that was like heresy for the the Church of England, because um, within deism was. Ah, Jesus Christ might not be so divine as you guys are claiming. Oh. The Trinity, yeah. that's not really a thing, but there is some kind of God. Okay. That, you know, that they call him like the watchmaker God who wound the universe up and just kind of sure. like hands off. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, there was a huge shift in religion here as well. Okay. Probably not so much as much towards like atheism. Right. But even the move from kind of more formal high church to deism yeah, was a big deal. But, all right, so let's get to the Declaration of Independence. But one thing before before we go there, yeah, yeah, the balls on this guy to argue that there's no economic advantage to remaining under Britain. Like that's the a, dominant that's sea statement. power at the time were the only way you could conduct trade and really kind of like big time commerce was by sea. Like, whew. yeah, I mean, I think that also shows like just the wealth of the American geography. Mm. I mean, that, that people could come here and build lives and be able to create a strong enough economy where they're going, you need us more than we need you. And then, that's it. It's game over. Like, <laughs> the minute people start thinking that there's <coughs> conflict, always. Um, okay, so Declaration of Independence. So Zinn says, quote, the myth of the revolution, that it was on behalf of a united people. The Declaration of Independence brought that myth to its peak of eloquence. Each harsher measure of British control, the proclamation of 1763, not allowing colonists to settle beyond the Appalachians, the stamp tax, the Townshend taxes, including the one on tea, the stationing of troops in the Boston Massacre, the closing of the Port of Boston and the dissolution of the Massachusetts legislator, legislature, escalated colonial rebellion to the point of revolution. The colonists had responded with the setting up of a Continental Congress and a legal body, forerunner of a future independent government, it was after the military clash at Lexington and Concord in April 1775 between colonial Minutemen and British troops that the Continental Congress decided on separation. They organized a small committee to draw up the Declaration of Independence, which Thomas Jefferson wrote. It was adopted by the Congress on July 2nd and officially proclaimed July 4th, 1776. By this time, there was already a powerful sentiment for independence. Resolutions adopted in North Carolina in May of 1776 and sent to the Continental Congress declared independence of England, asserted that all British law was null and void, and urged military preparations. When the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands, they should declare the causes. This was the opening of the Declaration of Independence. Then, in its second paragraph, came the powerful philosophical statement. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, 
that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Uh, it's wild to see the phrase, the myth of the re revolution and that the de declaration of independence brought the myth to the peak of eloquence. Now, to, the, to myth, be the myth being that this was happening on behalf, on behalf of, of the United, United people. people. Now, to be fair, no movement happens with 100% United people unless it's like two people deciding on where to go to dinner. And even then, who knows? Yeah. Um, but to to kind of speak so strongly that uh, and he sets this up in the earlier chapters that the people at this time were wealthy landowners middle class wealthy landowning white men middle class went landowning white men that's the people everybody else get out in his view uh, yeah so yeah I mean he has this this was just this one sentence quote says, some Americans were clearly omitted from this circle of united interest drawn by the Declaration of Independence. Indians, black slaves, and women. Mm -hmm. End quote. Does that seem like an unfair statement to you? That those three groups were outside the circle of united interest? Oh, no. Not at all. But... There's a there's like a limit on that to me as far as like how long they're able to be outside that circle because since like I said he set this argument up in a prior chapter um, who we the people actually applies to but yeah. if this is true the founding the founders kind of effed up by using language that's so broad even a slave could grab hold of it and use it to argue for their freedom which they did eventually. You're using language so so broad. Any, um, I don't want to jump ahead here if, if it's not. But he, um, I don't agree with Zinn and his characterization of the use of the word men as an omission to women. I've always taken that as just kind of like when you're talking about mankind, you're not talking about just the dudes. You're talking about humanity. So I think the broad language was intentional, in that we're not there yet. But we're going to leave it super broad because that will pave a way for a better future. That is a very optimistic outlook. And it's because, of it's because of where I'm sitting today yeah. that I have that outlook. Yeah, right? and so, I mean, because one of the things is like, so I, if, if you try to go back in time, which of course is a, is a flawed exercise, um, and I don't know if Zinn said this, but like the idea of who, just who can vote. Yeah. Um, women can't vote. <clears throat> so, and it's coming out of a, a, a patriarchal moment in time, which is the majority of time. Um, yeah, I guess I, I, I read it as, as an omission. Now, is it broad? Yes, certainly. 
I think that's one of just like the beautiful things about how language functions is that language can evolve. Mm-hmm. But when I think about like mm, what that language was intended at the time it was written, and then I think about uh, the need to add amendments throughout history, which then actually broaden the language. And I think maybe that's where I'm leaping ahead with my optimism is that built into the system was the ability to add those amendments to correct for uh, the evils of the time and using broad language ensured that that was possible. That when you're talking about we, the people, it can truly mean all of us, all humans. Yeah, I think that's when the, like, I think a lot of times people uh, have conversations and just a couple words are changed and they end up having two different conversations. Yeah. Because we yeah. can talk about what could it mean mm-hmm. versus what did it mean. And to me, those are two different conversations. And I think a lot mm. of times you have one person arguing for what could this mean yeah. and another person arguing for what did it mean. Yeah. And it's, it's just a waste of everyone's time because they're not going to get anywhere because yeah. they're having two separate conversations. Oh, yeah. And the phrase, all men are created equal, I'm going to have such a hard time truly buying Zinn's argument. Um, he laid it out well, right? So I'm not saying he's wrong at all. But that when you put that pen to paper, that you think even in even at the time that Jefferson thought, yeah, this is only going to apply to wealthy and middle-class landowning white men. They are created equal. And we're going to talk about that more right now. Jefferson. Okay, so on Thomas Jefferson, quote, Jefferson had written a paragraph of the declaration accusing the king of transporting slaves from Africa to the colonies and suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or to restrain this execrable commerce. (laughs) This seemed to express moral indignation against slavery and the slave trade. Jefferson's personal distaste for slavery must be put alongside the fact that he owned hundreds of slaves to the day he died. Behind it was the growing fear among Virginians and some other Southerners about the growing number of black slaves in the colonies, 20% of the total population, and the threat of slave results revolts as the number of slaves increased. Jefferson's paragraph was removed by the Continental Congress because slaveholders themselves disagreed about the desirability of ending the slave trade. So even that gesture toward the black slave was omitted in the great manifesto of freedom of the American Revolution, end quote. Um, One thing about Jefferson. So uh, a while ago, I had read a book. It's like Jefferson and Hamilton and their competing visions for America as founding fathers uh and part of what was covered in jefferson and i'm i'm gonna butcher this i'm pretty sure uh because he lived in france for a while he was a bit of a saucy boy uh he was like a diplomat over there in france he was a diplomat yeah and uh he has uh he has a taste for like nice furnishings nice clothes nice things whatever but one thing that was interesting when he was in France, he he brought with him a slave or servant, and I'm confused on this. It was either I'm 
but who, who was effectively his lover. And when they were in France, kind of like operated almost as his wife, I believe, like normal status, normal free person status. But then when they came back, she was kind of relegated back to the status of like a, um, a hidden concubine. And I'm messing this up because it's like slavery service. So that's just to say that Jefferson was very conflicted in this area when it came to um, the ownership of human beings. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. And this is like, um, I think about like f- for me as a human being personally, is it better to be conflicted, to know what is right and do wrong or to not know what is right and just do wrong because you don't know any better? Or is that an unfair characterization? So we're talking about Jefferson. I think that's partially unfair. Um, but I do believe that it is, it's much better to not know right and to commit wrong than to know it and not be able to stand up for what's right. Because um, I think there is, I think Jefferson was contributing to moving us away from slavery. It also sounds like there's fair arguments to be made that he was just annoyed uh, that like the slave trade didn't benefit him personally all that much. So he wanted to level the the playing field, economically speaking. Sure. It's probably difficult to get to the bottom of it. And- yeah. Yeah. Um, but there is, there was, it wasn't a foreign thought. I think we have to be fair that it wasn't completely outside of the, um, The, uh, the, like what they might be talking about, thinking about, and struggling with at the time. But like I, yeah, I guess I think I think that's something that makes people extremely angry mm-hmm. is that there was a sense of conflictedness, and it didn't get pushed through for a long time. But this is what what I said earlier that like change can be good even if it takes a long time, even if it's just small, you start that pebble rolling down the hill. You didn't do much, but eventually that landslide of change is going to come. And like, maybe you shouldn't get as much credit. Maybe the founding fathers shouldn't get as much credit for today as they do, but like they started something. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that. I think, I just think, I mean, for me, it's again, it's like, I just want to have the good and the bad laid out side by side. Yeah. I don't want either the good or the bad to be ignored because I don't think yeah. that's a fair character, characterization of anyone, anything, any place. I want access to both sides of the information. Well, here's some of the bad. Jefferson was a bad businessman. <laughs> Spent more time buying furniture and clothes than he did learning how to run his farm which was Monticello apparently had a fairly profitable nail production company though interesting so, there yes. you go fun fact uh, okay another quote about language quote the use of the phrase all men are created equal was probably not a deliberate attempt to make a statement about women 
It was just that women were beyond consideration as worthy of inclusion. They were politically invisible. Though practical needs gave women a certain authority in the home, on the farm, or in occupations like midwifery, they were simply overlooked in any consideration of political rights, any notions of civic equality, end quote. Yeah, and as I kind of said before, I don't know enough. He, he could just beat me up on this point, but I just, I've always, I always read that as like all men are created equal, just mankind, humanity. It's just a poetic way to say human beings are created equal. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think um, reading, for me, reading a bunch of literature throughout the just time periods of all sorts, um, people definitely like, there are moments like of a story about a specific woman where she's the, she's the main character. And that's like a unique feature within literature um, because that doesn't exist very often. Um, you could find one or two of those within Egyptian literature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I guess the I, I, the part of this that sticks out to me is just the idea of like being politically invisible, and how does how do you become visible? Um, and I, I, yeah, I just again I think about just my own life and like. Who are the people that are invisible to me? Who am I not seeing? Um, and I just, I just think it's like, I don't know. I just, I just, I think it's important to see people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to miss the humanity in other people. And I think it's important to try and see well. And we do, you think like so much of that missing can be just just trying to like organize and sort your 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 life in a way where you can just put things in its boxes and then you just start these gaps appear because you just haven't focused on it for a while. Um, so today I was looking for an an iPhone charging cord and it's like a it's like a ten footer. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, I, we don't need to get into reasons why I needed a 10-foot <laughs> charging cord, but I, I needed my 10-footer. I couldn't find it anywhere. And uh, it turns out it's been on a shelf that I've it's right in front of my face. Mm. But I've never seen it because it wasn't of any use to me. And I think often in my own life, I don't see things that are of use to me. And I think that there are a lot of people who may not, um, at first glance, offer me any kind of value that I look past. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, that's not the way that I want to live or be in the world. Um, and I wish it was easier. I wish I didn't have to like say that I look past people, but I do until they become of use to me. Yeah. And I'm just trying to like keep putting it in myself not to look past people, to make people visible because I believe that just because a human is a human means they're worthy to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's difficult work. I think yeah. it's work that individuals have to do every day. But another quote, quote, to say that the Declaration of Independence, even by its own language, was limited to life, liberty, and happiness for white males is not to denounce the makers and signers of the Declaration 
for holding the ideas expected of privileged males of the 18th century. Reformers and radicals looking discontentedly at history are often accused of expecting too much from a past political epoch, and sometimes they do. But the point of noting those outside the arc of human rights in the Declaration is not centuries late and pointlessly to lay impossible moral burdens on that time. <laughs> it is to try to understand the way in which the Declaration functioned to mobilize certain groups of Americans, ignoring others. Surely, inspirational language to create a secure consensus is still used in our time to cover up serious conflicts of interest in that consensus and to cover up also the omission of large parts of the human race, end quote. This is where he just like sat me down. I was like, listen, buddy. I'm not trying to like tear this all down and say it's horrible. Just let me try to write a freaking book. <laughs> well, and that's, that's like, these are moments where we're like, I tend to believe that, that, that he, that he means this yeah. and that this book is a specific project of the underbelly of American history. Mm -hmm. And I bet that if, if you could get a beer with Zinn, he'd have some good things to say about America. Yeah. And he just, yeah. And, and I can, I could accept it. There's a, there was this great show called bullshit by Penn and Teller. Okay. If you remember, um, they do some project about how this thing or that thing is bullshit. Right. It's a good show, but the problem with like that premise, there's also like the Adams ruin, ruins everything. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To me is like eventually you kind of run out of rocks to turn over and, and find shit under like, the, like you've already determined the outcome just based on the premise of the show. So I think that's some of what I'm reacting to in this book. I'm maybe a little too guarded with some of this because it's like, like how many episodes can you actually make where you're telling me, you know what you thought about this? Bullshit. It's like, oh, come on. Not everything is, is totally fabricated nonsense. There's gotta be something real. Yeah, so this is what I would say, like, uh, I would be fascinated to know if a book like this existed before he wrote this book. So, like... Let me just turn to the super concise and easy to page through bibliography. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so certainly he used tons of books about specific things. Yeah. But in terms of, like, from beginning to end, here's the whole story, the other side. Yeah. If that book didn't exist, then what this book allows someone to do is to write a history of the good and the bad because they can go to him and then his bibliography yep. and do more research. <clears throat> and that's the book that like, I really want to read Yeah, is the good, the bad and the ugly. But if there's no one's done the research of the bad, mm -hmm. then you got to do all of that. So like, yeah, to me, this is a valuable book for someday someone to write a more holistic history that is not so much myth and has, has multiple sides. That's, that's very fair. Yeah. I can see that. Okay, here's a question for you. Quote, the Declaration, like Locke's second treatise, talked about government and political rights, but ignored the existing inequalities in property. And how could people truly have equal rights with stark differences in wealth? End quote. So that was an interesting question. Fairly straightforward. Can people have equal rights 
with differences in wealth? I think Zinn would say no. And I guess I would say, okay, uh, you got to start somewhere. You're, if you're working toward individual freedoms and equality of rights under the law, whatever it might be, eventually you have to pick a starting point. Well, but I also like, I don't think it's that difficult to imagine people having equal rights and having different incomes. That doesn't seem like an impossibility to me. I think that the law could be applied equally to a poor person and a rich person. Well, that, like, that is the law. The law is supposed to apply and not favor the poor or the wealthy. Right, a law applies to all people equally. I know we can talk forever about how this this wealthy person gets off or whatever they get, especially, but that's that's the law not working. Um, I guess when it comes to how can people have when there's stark differences in wealth, like at the time you had to start somewhere, uh, but I get I. I have a maybe uh, a starry-eyed view that sure there's problems, but it doesn't matter how wealthy you are. If you um, if you commit a crime, you're gonna pay for it in some way. Yeah, even, even if it's giving up a massive amount of resources uh, to defend yourself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I don't, um, I probably have a little bit less starred view, but I don't think it's, I, I do not think it's impossible for equal rights to exist and differences in wealth to exist. Um, yeah, definitely not. All right, last quote. Here we go. Quote, in America, the reality behind the words of the Declaration of Independence issued in the same year as Adam Smith's capitalist manifesto, The Wealth of Nations, was that a rising class of important people needed to enlist on their side enough Americans to defeat England without disturbing too much the relations of wealth and power that had developed over 150 years of colonial history. Indeed, 69% of the signers of the Declaration of Independence had held colonial office under England. When the Declaration of Independence was read, with all its flaming radical language from the town hall balcony in Boston, it was read by Thomas Crafts, a member of the Loyal Nine group, conservatives who had opposed militant action against the British. Four days after this reading, the Boston Committee of Correspondence ordered the townsmen to show up on the common for a military draft. The rich, it turned out, could avoid the draft by paying for substitutes. The poor had to serve. This led to rioting and shouting. Tyranny is tyranny. Let it come from whom it may. End quote. One thing I don't want to lose in that is uh, how he talks about change is happening, but the rising class of important people are only going to allow change to happen. They don't want to upset the apple cart, right? Yep, we want change to happen, so we're going to enlist people on their side. We're going to maybe let things be a little bit better for them, but we need to maintain some of the status quo. I don't think that's that that is that ridiculous. And I don't think you can get anything even close to a new country without that. You can't, you can't flip the whole table over 
and then say, all right, let's keep playing Monopoly. Like, it doesn't work. Uh, you can't blow up your entire system, um, decimate whatever economy you have, whatever infrastructure you have created, uh, turn entire functions of whatever government exists or business or commerce on its head by just flipping up who runs it and who does this and who does that and then expect things to like fall in a good way. So when it's talking about um, not disturbing um, the relations of wealth and power, well, duh, you can't blow the whole thing up. Something has to maintain. And that's where, again, I'm going to say the same thing. Change can be good even if it happens slowly. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly for any um, for there to ever be order, there has to be some order, right? Like you're saying, like you can't throw all all the order out the window and let chaos reign, because on the other side, you're not going to have order. You have to rebuild everything yeah. from the ground up. Um, one of the things that that I've been I've been thinking about is. So like some of this language, the idea of people who who have power. And let's, let's talk about. I'll just use the word power. Mm-hmm. I'll set the wealth to the to the side. Yeah, I think it's a more complex conversation. Uh, I think one of the things that Zinn is highlighting, or trying to highlight, or trying to argue, is that he sees people this time with power trying to. I don't know, maybe, maybe you'd say desperately hold on to power. Yeah, so objective one, hold on to power. Yeah. Um, I think that that's not the best way to operate. And I'm not saying that's exactly how this was operating. I don't know. But um, I think it's possible to like to share in power and for both sides to come out better does it make any sense at all yeah just <clears throat> and so what what i am curious in and i i don't think we figured this out today yeah i am curious in is it possible to create systems where um the end result of some of the systems results in power being shared people or even Maybe just being classified differently. Power is just it's chopped up into more segments so people can focus on specific things that their skill set really plays to. Yeah, or it's more difficult to hoard. Because well, yeah. like that's one of the things that I think just gets humans in so much trouble mm-hmm. is the hoarding and sort of just like the drive for the endless drive for more. I yeah. always have to have more. Yeah. And never being able to be like I'm good. I have enough and I, I don't, I don't need any more. Yeah. And to, to, to find true contentment in that. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's something that I, that, that, that I want to argue for, for everyone is like, it's, it's, it's possible. Like you can, yeah. you can get to a place where you have enough mm-hmm. and then you can like, you can like enjoy your life yeah. with what you have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
and yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to design a system like that, or if that can only flow out of an individual making that choice. Um, I think, yeah, I think it has to. It's just, it's, there's so many things like that: weight loss, career, education. To, like, we can do all we want to develop. Systems, apps, routines, whatever, hacks, self-help books, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, that that individual person has to wake up every morning and make the choice to make their life better. I'm also thinking right now, this is sort of a weird thought. I'm also wondering if like mm, systems in general uh, may end up leaning bad. In terms of like, hmm. I mean, in science, you'd call it entropy, right? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if systems across time, and maybe it's maybe it's unfair to even, because that, that's one of the things that, that's going to come up again and again and again within within Zin's view. Yeah, is power dynamics and systems. <clears throat> um, I, I, I'm not sure where I'm where I'm where I'm at with systems, because one view is they're neutral because it's a system. It's the people are, are the ones that are creating the good and the bad. Yeah. It's possible. Um, I also wonder if it's if it's possible that that systems just kind of always end up getting wonky. What if they just age out? Well, that's, that's kind of what I'm saying. So when a system gets aged out, when it doesn't work anymore, if nobody changes it, mm-hmm then it's going to produce bad things. We're definitely going to continue following this thread over this season. That wraps up chapter four. Tyranny is tyranny. Um, we'd like anyone who listened to this and maybe wants to continue the conversation to email us at the Daedalus workshop at gmail.com. That's the D A E D A L U S workshop at gmail.com. Thanks for coming out. Cheers.